Jesus House in pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential, impacting lives. This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London. God bless you. Michael T. Omoni is the founder and director of our God-given mission, OGGM, a Christian charity helping millennials know the gospel and articulate their faith in an age of scientism and confusion. In 2019, Michael was recognized by the Financial Times as one of the 100 most influential leaders in tech in the UK as a result of his role as a founder and director of the Common Sense Network, a UK-based network for and by millennials. He is passionate about preaching the gospel and about societal change, and his various roles within the Youth Voice include Member of Youth Parliament and Young Ambassador to the European Union. He also serves on the panel of Young Advisors at Chatham House and the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Please welcome Michael Omoni to the Pursuit of God Conference 2021. Hello Jesus House, it is a joy to be with you this morning, this evening, I'm not quite sure where you'll be listening to this. Um, when I was approached to speak, I got super excited because of the theme. It's something I love. God's doing a new thing, a new age of destiny. These are all things that make me very happy. So I'm very excited to speak today. Um, the, the anchor scripture, if you like, Isaiah 43. Again, something that got me very, very excited. Uh, it says in Isaiah 43, 18 to 19, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. I see I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. This is one of my favorite scriptures. We all love this scripture because it speaks about God's desire to do new things in our lives. And today I want to press into what that new thing might be. What is this new thing God's doing in this time, how do we, as my old pastor used to say, key into it to make sure we don't miss out? So with that in mind, let's pray as we get into uh, our short time together. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to press into your words, look into your word, to be guided by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that even though we're separated by hundreds of miles and, and we're not together in person, God, we know that the spirit that searches the depths of God can be everywhere at the same time. So God, we rely on your spirit at this time to teach us, to lead us, to guide us. Amen. I should also say, it's still very odd, this remote thing, but you know, glory to God, we're going to make do with what we have and God's going to move uh, anyways. I want to start right at the beginning, this new thing, because when I think of new, I get pretty excited, right? Um, no matter how old we are, whether you're a mom, you're, you know, you're a dad, you're a grandma, everyone gets excited about new things. We all love new things. Um, when I was young, Christmas <laughs> was, the, was the period of time that, that my excitement shut up to un uh, unmanageable, unmanageable levels. Why? Because I was excited that something new may come. Um, and we all know that feeling we get, you know, New Year's Eve, 
When we think, oh my gosh, a new year is about to happen, we equally get excited. I get excited about a new month. I get excited about a new week. I get excited about a new day. We all love newness. And so we're always in this eager anticipation for the new. And how amazing is it? friends, to consider the fact that God is in the business of doing new things. I mean, I mean, who else would you rather receive a present from? Uh, think about the last good gift you've received. Take some time and think about it. One of my favorite gifts was, I think when I was in sixth form, so I'd have been 18 or so, a friend of mine who knew I loved Ella Fitzgerald bought me a, a, a DVD, CD, I don't know what you call it, album of Ella Fitzgerald, and I thought, wow, that was a great gift. You think about yours. Who's that person in your life that's given you a really good gift that you go, wow, this person knows me. If you haven't, I pray that someone enters your life and gives you good gifts. But, but, but if you can think of the best gift you received, I've got news for you, and that is that God is a better gift giver than that person right? God has a better gift for you than the one that you're thinking about now. God is the principal gift giver. And as such, as we press into what he's doing today, we can really start to unpack what kind of, what kind of gift has God got for me? That should be getting you excited. I can sense some, some, uh, some, some, some excitement through the camera lens. Someone's excited about what God's going to do, and you should be. But before we go into what God's doing and what this new thing might be, we do have to uh, address the elephant in the room. And that is that sometimes, because we think about God in the same way we think about that friend that gave us a gift, we can sometimes expect him to give the same type of gift that friend gave. You know, we, we think God, when he says, I'm doing a new thing, is going to add to our list of stuff, right? He's going to give us you know, uh, uh, another material pos possession, uh, something else we can add into the litany uh, of things that fill our table. This isn't always true, because when we think about God doing a new thing, we have to be careful to clarify. Sometimes God does a new thing for us, but sometimes he does a new thing in us. That's an important distinction. That's what sets God apart from every other gift giver you know. God does new things in us. And so when I think about what the primary gift giver would give me, well, he's going to give me his best, right? He is. He's going to give me the best thing he, could, uh, he, he has to offer. So what's the greatest gift God could give us? I know this is a simple question when I'm talking to a roof full of Christians. Of course, the greatest gift God could give us is himself. And that is my big announcement today. That is the big reveal. God's greatest gift to us is himself. And what a joy that God doesn't give us things that fade away, things that catch rust, right? Instead, he gives us the greatest gift, with, which is himself. So, so, so in the Bible, as we are going to look at now, God positions himself as God the, the giver, but also God the gift. And so making sense of that in view of this newness is what we want to do today. Uh, I know it may sound really spiritual and nebulous to go, God is the gift. Hmm. And you're thinking, well, what about the stuff I need? Well, well, here's some news for you, which you know, but I have to remind you of. Everything you own right now, things you've maybe saved up to even buy, 
at some stage you will give away, you'll give away freely because they don't they no longer hold the value uh, that they used to hold. In fact, some of the things you have right now will be the stuff of future garage sales, uh, the, the stuff you chuck away into a bag, the stuff you, you give to a chari- charity shop. So, so, so God in his wisdom, knowing that you know, everything we have you know, uh, at some stage loses value, he gives us the most valuable thing, which is himself. And this is what I want to press into today. God as the giver and God as the gift and what that means for the newness and the new thing he's doing in your life. To do this, we must go to Psalms. If you know me, I've quoted this scripture to you many times before. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. In the book of Psalms 73, you hear a psalm from a man called Asaph. Now, Asaph was a prominent Levite singer uh, in David's court. Uh, he's featured prominently in the Chronicles. Uh, he's described as the chief of the Levites. And so this is a man who, who's appointed to minister uh, before the ark of, uh, of the Lord. Uh, His brothers and sisters were also singers. So this is a singing family, a a, a musician's family, a man who we would say knows God. Now, I love Psalms 73 because Asaph bears his heart out. And there's a portion I want us to focus on, which which further further exemplifies this this topic we're considering. uh, God as the giver and God as the gift and what that means for the newness uh, and the, the, the new thing it's doing in your life. So from Psalms. 73. 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. I mean, uh, we should pause there. Because this psalm comes from Asaph in a place where he's perplexed. He's confused. He's uh, sad. He's bewildered. He's lost. In many ways, this is how a lot of us felt this, this past year, right? I recall moments where my head was in my hand, where I didn't quite know what was happening next. I remember being someone who's in business, losing deals and going, where am I going to make up the money? I remember hearing about a family member who had died and feeling really confused and saying the same thing he was saying. In verse 3, here's what he says. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How many of us have seen something similar? Those who are unscrupulous, those who are profiteering, somehow making more money and seemingly announcing on Instagram how great life is going for them. In verse 4, he says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten opposition. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, or in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's speaking candidly here. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. It's a really personal diary. Asaph is sharing here how he feels. 
He's emoting. And I, for one, can empathize with him because I've had these very thoughts and questions myself. Now, the story reaches a very interesting crescendo when he gets into verse 25. And Asaph, in a couple of words, paints a picture that is genuinely mind-blowing. After saying everything he says in the verses prior, he then says something that's pretty radical to me. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? He says, and there's nothing else I desire on earth besides you. In verse 26, he goes, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Yes, it's poetic words, but think about what's going on here. After speaking about other people uh, seemingly making money, profiteering, growing, getting fat, getting rich, Asaph turns to God and says, God, I don't want what they want. You are my portion. It's a big, big, big prayer. My question for us today is, could we say the same thing? When things are falling around us and, and things don't quite look as put together as they ought to be, could we say a similar thing to Asaph and say, you know what, God, I have nothing on earth I desire besides you. And, 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 and why would I want to come to heaven if it's not to be with you forever? And even though my heart may fail and things may break around me, you are my portion. How does that prayer become a real and pragmatic way of life for us? Not just some cute phrases in Psalms, but something we genuinely hold dear that colors the very life we uh, call Christian. What does it look like for God to be our portion? In this new age of the new and the expensive and the fresh, how do we say, God is my portion? How do we say God is the giver, but he's also the gift I want? How do we say he, he, he must be my primary gift, even as uh, the iPhone for 45 comes out? I don't know what number they're on now, but I do know if you don't pay attention, it jumps exponentially. So it could be iPhone 25 now. But how do you not be labored and, 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 and really into that rampant consumerism, but instead you can pray a prayer like Asaph? Well, to get there, we have to uh, decipher two terms, two really important terms. In Protestantism, they're, 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 they're the hallmarks. This is something we think about all the time. But I'm going to try and break it down uh, uh, today, too. And I want to talk about union and communion and perhaps the difference between them. You know, when we think about God as the giver, our job is to do what? Receive. <laughs> right? It's to receive. Uh, the giver gives and we receive. But when we think about God as the gift, we're talking there about something different. We're talking there about fellowshipping and handling. The, uh, this is slightly different. The term union and communion are really important words. Really important theological happenings that we have to, we have to uh, uh, understand. Because God's plan... It's for our union with him to mature into a real and practical, uh, some may say pragmatic communion with him. Now, when we think about union, 
The best way to describe it is, you know, in John 3.16, we learn that we are privileged enough to be the object of God's attention or, or the object of God's, God's affection. Uh, God, through Jesus, comes down, John 1.13. He, he dies for our sins, and by virtue of coming down, we get to have, uh, uh, we're, we're, um, we're unified with him, right? We have union with God. In John 14, and even in 15, you learn about this union you have with God. You know, in Galatians 2.20, it's made even more clear that it's no longer I that uh, I'm crucified with Christ. It's, not, I, it's no longer I that live. It's Christ that lives uh, through me. Uh, in, in Romans uh, 6, 6, you get a similar picture. Our union with God speaks about this settling of a war that was going on with God. That, that by virtue of Jesus dying, we get to have you know, that, that, you know we're, we're unified with him, right? The spirit lives through us, willing us to want to live like, like Christ. Our union is settled. That's the good news. Our union with God is settled. It's once, it's eternal. You know, the devil cannot snatch us out of God's hands. God is far too powerful. And so our union with God is that thing that happened when you said yes to Jesus. When you said, I believe in Jesus, right? You, know, you were adopted into his family and unified with him. And he's keeping you, and I pray he will keep us until that very last day. But you know, union is only one part of the picture. In fact, union is, is probably a better way to describe it. Is union is the beginning of the picture. Because what happens after union, and what's meant to be the case for believers, and, and the new thing that God is doing, and what makes God the gift and the giver, is, is the, the gift, and what happens and flows from union, is your communion with God. Communion with God is distinct from your union with God. Because when you're united with God, Right? It's a once and, and, and a settled reality. But communion speaks about embracing the gift. It's about unpacking the gift, uh, uh, undoing the ribbon, taking it out, uh, feeling the gift, reveling in the gift, enjoying the gift. That's what communion means. It's, it's such a joy that God doesn't make our salvation journey some cold, formal, uh, uh, affair, where he puts in a down payment and goes, yes, it's been done. Move on. You're, you're free to go. It's how I was treated one time. I went to the, uh, I went to the post office. And they just said, yeah, it's done. Bye. And I thought, wow. Let's, let's start a relationship. I, mean, I, I didn't say that. But, but the point is, that's what uh, uh, communion with God offers us. A chance to be in relationship with God. Not just to, to see him as a, a cold father who, who is putting a transaction for our souls, but instead... A loving father who desires fellowship and practical intimacy with us. Our communion with God is what I want to focus on today. That's what I think the last year has threatened. That's what I think our flesh wars against. That's what I think the enemy is after. Your communion with God. Jesus helpfully makes it clear because in John 6 we get arguably what is most people agree most scholars at least agree the most amazing miracle we see in the Bible right well, one of the most amazing miracles we see in the Bible I would say and it's when, John, uh, when Jesus decides to feed the 5,000 I love the story the story is amazing in the book of John 6 you can read it all 
from, from verse 1 to 15, we learn about the story. The story is pretty simple. Uh, a boy with barley loaves, small loaves, um, um, uh, you know, has food, lunch, so to speak. There's a lot of people who are sitting around there, you know, waiting to hear Jesus speak. They're hanging around, so to speak. And there isn't enough food to go around. Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, blesses it. The bread s- multiplies miraculously and everyone is fed. And, and I love that story because it, 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 on one part, speaks about how God will use the most seemingly insignificant things and people. And he will use it to achieve amazing miracles. That's what he did with that small boy and the barley loaves. And so God can do the same thing in your life, in my life. And he, he has a pattern of doing such. But also, Jesus uses this story to paint a very powerful picture about his communion. Because imagine the scene. Everyone's got bread. Everyone's belly full, as you'd say, where I'm from. People are singing, dancing. I can imagine a guy playing the guitar. I don't know if there was reggae at the time, but it seems appropriate. The song would be just chilling out, relaxing, going, wow. I'm fed. My, my wife's fed. My cousin's fed. Our belly's full and we're having a, a whale of a time. And then Jesus, who has this habit of taking no, really, really kind of zenith moments. Moments where uh, the mission is starting to go well, where his disciples are probably going, finally, we're getting, we're getting some traction. Jesus has this habit of saying something and just, just, just ruining the mood, right? Just, just, just changing uh, the, the schematics of the whole thing. Of course, what he's doing is inviting them into greater knowledge, wisdom, and maturity. So after everyone's eaten, celebrating, celebrating, singing all sorts of songs, In verse 26, Jesus says, folks, don't work for the food that spoils. There's greater food. He said, your ancestors, they wanted food and manna fell from the sky. They got the new stuff. They got the new things. They got what their heart desired. They they, they got that. But still they died. He says, don't work for the food that spoils. In verse 53, it takes it up a notch, doesn't it? He goes, you're eating, folks, but it's the spirit that gives life. He says, what you're eating will sustain you for a period, but it's the spirit that gives life. Again, they go, oh my gosh, what's what's going on here? I love Jesus because it doesn't stop there. In verse 60, we learn that many hear this and go, nah, Uh, we, we can't handle this. He says, you're eating bread. But how many of you know there's greater bread, which is my flesh? He goes, you're drinking, but there's greater drink, which is my blood. He invites them to eat his flesh, to drink his blood. He says, come together. Now, for folks who are a bit no, gory, thinking, oh, he's not speaking literally, folks. There wasn't enough bread uh, and enough blood to go around. So there's no way. I mean, Jesus was probably five foot eleven. There isn't enough. Six pints of blood isn't enough to feed a people. So he wasn't talking literally. He was inviting them into fellowship, communion. When we uh, uh, drink uh, 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 in church and we break bread, 
All of that is, is a metaphor for what we're meant to be enjoying by virtue of being believers. The communion that God invites us through uh, to through Jesus Christ is that we would be able to, to, to have what the Bible describes as koinonia in the Greek. This notion of intimacy. That's what God's calling us to. In this story, he's saying, listen, listen, listen. yes, I can, I can give you the new. Yes, I can give you new things. But the greatest thing I can give you is myself. Come and have intimacy with me. Come and be one with me. Come and handle me. Share with me. That's the great invitation you get in this story. And he tells it to thousands of people. And what happens? They walk away. They walk away, friends. They go, oh, oh, actually, uh, this is too hard. But it's because they lacked understanding. Because what he was doing, what Jesus was doing in that moment is saving them from a lifetime of chasing the new, the new, the new. And he was offering them satisfaction, peace, joy. These intangible things that genuinely fill you up such that you're never hungry again. Such that you could pray the prayer that Asaph prayed and say, you know what? God's my portion. In a world where people are running after things, God is my portion and I'm going to enjoy and handle him. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. When I was growing up in church and I heard that, I, you know, I was like, no thanks, that sounds a bit wild to me, to say the least. But when you think about it, what a great invitation Jesus offers us as believers to have intimacy with him in this way. When you start to understand how important your real and practical communion is with God, you start to see the devil's ploy in your life. I mean, many look at lockdown and cry and go, lockdown has locked us all inside, our lives have shrunk. That's one way to look at it. Or you could say, no, 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 my prayer closet has got bigger. That's what's happened here. It's not like that. It's not like I haven't shrunk and become small. No, no, no. The devil, unfortunately, made a mistake because actually what's happening is my, my prayer closet, the, the space through which I can travel, that's got bigger. Think about that. Doesn't that then change what happens to us? Doesn't it waken us up to see all the different ways in which our flesh and the devil conspire to trick us out of our communion with God? This fosters a new intentional God-mindedness in us. I remember when I was counseling a younger brother of mine. He was struggling with sin. And he said, Mike, there's this sin, I'm struggling with it, it keeps coming up and up again. And I said, well, you know, let's talk about it. We, we go into detail on what the sin is, what's happening, how it happens. And I told him, I said, hey, what's your prayer life like? And he said, I'll be honest with you, ever since I've been struggling with this particular sin, I'm kind of struggling to pray. And that's when... It almost dropped like a ton of bricks on me. Because I thought to myself, this is interesting. You see, I don't think the devil's really interested in us simply sinning. And I know some people go, this is wild, Michael. The devil is all about sin. I don't 
think that's his primary focus. I'll tell you why. Because of your union with Christ and your union with God and the gospel and Romans 3, 27 and Romans 10, 3 and imputed righteousness and all these great words. Whatever you do that misses the mark, God has paid for through Jesus. I mean, it sounds obvious, but that's a very sobering thing to remind ourselves of. That whatever we do, whatever mistake we make, Jesus has paid for it. And so the devil knows that simply sinning isn't enough. So what he targets, as he did in that example I gave you, isn't to just get the guy sinning, but to create a circumstance, a situation where he feels far away from God. And so he doesn't feel like he can pray. The devil cannot disrupt our union with God. And so he wages a war on our communion with God. He goes, all I can do is fill this man's, this woman, this, this, this person's life with so much mist, so much, so much fog, so as to create confusion. And to facilitate a separation from God. That's what he's after. That's why when we know we should pray, a hundred things come up after. (laughs) That's why when we know that, you know what? I need to fast, our belly starts singing. And goes, come on Michael, you know you're hungry. That's why when we know that there's a friend we ought to give counsel to, suddenly we're not really in the mood anymore, we're busy, something comes up. The world almost conspires, when I say the world, I mean the fallen system, always, it conspires to to rob us of this real and practical communion with God. Because our sin is paid for, separation from God is what the world wants. That's the good news. (laughs) That's the good news. That no one can snatch you out of God's hand. Nobody. But through your decisions, through wisdom, your communion with God can grow in a real and practical way. How do we grow in our communion with God? Through prayer, through meditation, through reading the word, through godly fellowship, through, 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 through spending time with Christians, right? Through sharing your lives, journeying with, with other believers, through communion with the Holy Spirit. Through fasting, through singing praise, through singing worship, through godly thoughts, through dreams. These are all different ways we can fellowship and grow in our relationship with God. And coming out of lockdown as we are, running as we are now, I want to encourage us to be careful. Not to leave God in that large prayer closet that COVID created. But as we embrace the new world, full of new things, we remember that the greatest gift God would ever give us is himself. And so we must unpack that gift. The Bible in Corinthians makes a difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. 
It says the wisdom of the world comes through our eyes and our ears. We listen, we learn. The wisdom of God is intangible. It comes directly from him as a gift. And that's what I want us to pray for right now. Pray that God, give me your wisdom to navigate this increasingly uh, increasingly complicated world. Give me your wisdom to make sense of all the complexities as we come out of lockdown, as we uh, try and balance new different, uh, we've got financial goals, we've, we've got family goals. There's so much we're trying to do, God. Help us in all of this, not to relegate communion with you to, to something we can do later. No, it's something we cannot afford to, mix, uh, to, to miss. And so God, help us with the wisdom to think this. I want to pray for those who are struggling with communion. Father, I pray that you would make yourself a real and, a, and an increasingly tangible reality for a lot of different people. I want to pray for those who perhaps uh, what I described, that mist feels like you. Well, there's just so much fog clouding your mind as you think about communion with God. Father, I pray that you clear up such a mist. Because I pray again that God, you would blow and your wind would clear all the fog and confusion that may surround us. Father, you said if we draw near to you, you would draw near to us. In fact, you've, you've made the first move. Father, Lord, empower us. Give us the strength, the boldness to, to pursue you like we've never done before. Father, we pray that you would remind us of your presence. Help us know that you are near. That you are near us. You're not on the mountain. You are with us. God, you, you told us in, throughout the whole Bible, through Joshua, God, we learn that you are with us. Through the book of John 16, Father, we learn about your close and, 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 and abiding presence. Help us as we navigate the world to know that you are with us. Father, help us to be content. I pray that 1 Timothy 6, 6, God, would be real in our lives. That we would value godliness and contentment. Help us, God, to, 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 to not relegate you on our list of priorities. To have you, God, as number one. For you to be center centerpiece God could I pray that as we navigate just our lives that this message wouldn't be something we heard once but it would be a very you know lived uh, uh, reality for us that, that our communion with you would be strong God we pray and we resist the enemy and every attempt to trick every attempt to confuse Every attempt to, to leave us lost that sea, Father, we reject. Instead, we lean on you, we trust in you, we believe in you. And God, we, we, we're just desperate to know you. We want to know you. It's the only thing that matters. Help us to show what we believe in our lives through action. Father, I pray for a change of behavior. I pray for families right now that you may be rekindling. Maybe some families need to reinstate monthly prayers, daily prayers, family Bible studies, family prayer, family fasting. Father, I just pray that, that, that these things will become real in our lives. I pray for a revival in the church of people, believers, who would be assured in their union, 
but would begin to enjoy a real and practical communion with you. We thank you for being the God of the new. Thank you for the new season you're bringing us into. Thank you for the newness you're doing in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. I pray the rest of the conference is amazing and you're blessed. And I'll be looking keenly to see all the amazing things God does uh, through this program. Thank you very much.